This is B-Side. I'm Tamara Keith, and on this edition of the show, we're talking about food and our relationship with food. And right now I'm peeling some organic carrots uh, for a recipe that I'm about to make up, some vegetarian lentil soup. It's my mom's recipe. Food has such a strange place in our lives. I mean, fundamentally, it's fuel, but it carries so much more. There are so many great memories tied to food. And other people have really tough relationships with the things that they eat, which is why at some point as we were putting this show together, we wondered if, if the theme should really be food is your enemy. Our first story comes from Jody Avergan in New York City. He met some people who've made eating an extreme sport. So there's these two guys, Curtis Kaleo and Ben Parker. They're pretty typical New York artist types. They're in their late 20s, working freelance to get by month to month. Ben and Curtis have a close group of friends. Uh, they like to eat out, and they're not afraid of a little adventure. But on the first Tuesday of each month, they really take that to its most disgusting extreme. Goat's eyeballs, live octopus, chicken butt, raw liver, fetal duck eggs, tripe, you know, lamb's tongue and pork belly. The time we went to have uh, guinea pig. Good God, guinea pig? I mean, who are these guys? So as it turns out, Ben and Curtis are the organizers and the most zealous members of a group that gets together once a month to explore the most exotic cuisine New York has to offer. The club got its start the way most great ideas do, with a conversation over dinner. Here's Curtis. After having ordered about the 100th Caesar salad um, and sat with people who happily ate away at that, I was looking for other people who wanted to eat strange and unusual things. So um, one night, Ben and I got talking, and we decided that what we should do is start this gastronauts club. That's right. They're called the gastronauts. Boldly eating where no man, you know. So as far as I'm concerned, the brilliant name alone pretty much requires them to follow through with the idea. And follow through they have. For a recent meeting, I joined the group as they hopped on the rickety 7 train out to Long Island City, Queens. This was to visit the Rudar Soccer Club. This place, Rudar, it's not so much a restaurant as it is a beer hall, but it also happens to serve really amazing, authentic Croatian cuisine. There's old men playing checkers and cards upstairs as we walk down into the basement. As we're sitting down, the owner comes over to discuss the menu with Ben. So what are we, what are we going to have? Polenta with the skate. Yes. Because it's the fish and it's better you have fish, you know, at the I, same time. I agree. It's good? Yeah, it's good. Without delay, out come plates and plates of the first dish. This is sautéed skate. Now, for my money, skate is probably the ugliest creature in the whole sea. Luckily, though, it's covered in a pretty fantastic red sauce, so I drink a bunch of cheap Croatian wine and I gobble it up along with the rest of the group. Next, the owner brings out a few pasta dishes. There's, there's two dishes here, one's fuzi and one's gnocchi, and they both have the same sauce, unfortunately, and kind of big chunks of mystery meat. And enjoy. It turns out the mystery meat is tripe, which is stomach lining. Tripe is pretty hard to eat, even for the gastronauts, because it's got this really nasty texture, almost hairy. At this point, I decide I'm full. The food here at Rudar isn't that adventurous by gastronautical standards. There's no eyeballs or raw liver. But the night still meets one of the club's key criteria, which is that it gives us all a really great cultural experience. Yeah, it's really an excursion. And, you know, I mean, most cultures are... Most places in, in the world are relatively poor, and they have to eat all parts of the animals, so they develop their cuisine around 
you know, all the various parts. So it's not so just chicken breasts. It's not just chicken breasts and bagged you know, salad and thighs. It's chicken butts and and goat eyeballs. Our evening at Rudar has now extended into its fourth hour. All of a sudden, at the table appears this unmarked bottle of clear liquid. Ben grabs it and starts pouring shots for everyone. Caught up in the spirit, Curtis tells a story of perhaps the most famous gastronaut outing ever. This is the time they all went to Koreatown to search for live octopus. It was like we'd stepped into a Korean village. It was like bare cement. There were tanks lining the, the right side of the wall full of these like exotic animals that I'd never seen. We said, okay, so do you serve live octopus? And I made a kind of motion with my hands to show... The octopus, and they said yes, 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 and it was uh, it was extraordinary. They put on this incredible feast with uh, live squirming octopi, which they the limbs of which they cut off and then fed to us. Yeah, I don't know how the idea to, to eat live octopus really came up. I think we I'd just, seen it somewhere, read about it somewhere. We just started talking about it. Honestly. Yeah, and it's a, it's sort of a unique Korean delicacy. I mean, it's in some sort of seafood towns in Korea, and there's all these stories, you know, sort of. As you start to read about live octopus online, you know, there's a horror story here about someone eating an octopus and it opens up live and in their throat and suffocates them. So we thought that would be fun. Yeah, that doesn't sound like too much fun to me. I mean, skate and tripe is one thing, but squirming octopus? Why did the gastronauts do this? In some cases, Curtis says the food really is great. He claims that raw liver is one of the best things he's ever eaten. But when it comes to lamb's eyeballs or giant Nigerian slugs, what's the motivation? Is it bragging rights? Are these guys masochistic? You know, part of me thinks that the gastronauts do this just so that they can have great stories to tell. The idea behind the club isn't, isn't just a fear factor sort of right. style of dining. It really is to get people outside their sort of comfort zone. And part of, it, part of it's the group mentality that makes it easy for people to eat this stuff. You know, when you have 15 people around you, 20 people, and everyone's sort of, you know, picking at this and then diving in, it makes it a lot easier. Yeah. For me, with my trip to Rudar, this was actually really key. Look, this is a social club. The gastronauts, they really enjoy each other's company. Some of them are dating. And doing crazy things with your friends is always a thrill, even if what you're doing is incredibly disgusting. The balut, I thought that was the line. That was crossing it a little bit. The balut is a, is an embryonic chicken egg. 16 days, I think they say. Sweet 16 is the best. Is the best. <laughs> <laughs> the, waiter, the waiter sort of looked at me and he said, you know, we usually eat this in the dark. <laughs> yeah, well, that's probably because you're eating a fetal chicken. But Curtis says the club has changed the way he eats even normal food. It's definitely made me not afraid of anything. You know how you're in a... You're in a in a Chinese restaurant or in a Japanese restaurant or, or something like that, and you look at the menu, you're not exactly sure what it is. So you sort of stick with what you know. Nope. I definitely, after this club, I, I go everywhere. I eat anything. Recently, the gastronauts celebrated their first year anniversary. Ben and Curtis asked the group which one place they wanted to revisit. The winner? The group's going back to Koreatown for more live octopus. After that, the gastronauts plan to keep eating things the rest of us would rather not think about. The big, the big question is when we decide to go try and find dogs somewhere. Yeah. You up for that, Curtis? Where's that line? <laughs> Where'd that line go? <laughs> I'd eat one of your cats. <laughs> you would? You know, I think I'll skip that meeting. For B-Side, I'm Jody Abergan.
Jody comes to us from WFUV in New York. I just put some onions and shallots in the pot here with some, just a little tiny bit of butter. Um, and this is going to form the base of the lentil soup that I'm making tonight. Whoa, onions. <laughs> oh. um, you know, I, I try to make healthy meals and I try to plan my meals in advance and, and it can be kind of hard. Recently, my younger brother Donovan has also been planning his meals and watching what he eats. But he's been doing it like eight times a day. He's an actor and he just got cast in this role where he has to put on a lot of weight, which might sound like fun, but for him it's been miserable. It is February, I don't know, it's Super Bowl Sunday. And now I'm grilling up a couple of chicken breasts on the uh, good old George Foreman. Hey, I'm Donovan Keith and... I'm really skinny, like really skinny. I'm over six feet tall and I'm about 153 pounds most of the time, but I've been working really hard to change that. I'm also going to be having a, about a cup of vegetables, 16 ounces of chicken, about eight ounces of veggies, and about eight ounces of potato trying to hit 170 pounds um, by tomorrow morning. I was at 168 at my last weigh-in, so I've been working to, to eat more so I don't disappoint myself or my trainer. We'll find out how that goes tomorrow when I meet with Melfred. Okay, about to start chowing down. Melfred is my personal trainer, and uh, he promises me that he's going to turn me into a manimal. But uh, I really just want to gain 30 pounds for my next play. I got cast in a production of Take Me Out. And uh, it's a show that got a lot of reviews when it uh, first hit Broadway. It's a show about baseball. And uh, it opens up with 12 naked men downstage center. It's a locker room scene. And uh, I play the catcher. Which is why I feel like all I do nowadays is eat food and lift weights, and lift weights, and eat food. It's 11.03 p.m., and I'm still working on eating dinner. I'm on to my second chicken breast. Uh, it's taken a while. It's a little cold, so I just popped it in the microwave. Feeling full already. Going to be force-feeding myself. Fun. Mm. Okay. After this... We'll probably wait a few minutes, then we got a protein shake before bed. It's now 11.25. And, um, feeling a little sick. Can't really eat any more of this. There's probably, like, a third of a chicken breast left. 
my dinner. I'm hoping that I'm going to the shakedown because uh, I really want to hit 170 tomorrow because I've been trying to break that for a couple weeks now. It's getting frustrating. Yeah, I'll have the shake. Oh, yeah. Day job plus nighttime rehearsal equals sleepwalking to the gym. It's uh, Monday morning, and it is 5.52 a.m. I'm about to head off to my meeting with my trainer. I just need to make a shake. I have to eat six meals a day. I need to get at least 100 grams of protein. So that means six eggs for breakfast, uh, steak for dinner, chicken for lunch, and every meal I'm supplementing with some kind of protein shake or protein bar. I'm eating 4,000 calories a day. It is 6.55. I just got back from my, uh, my workout session with Malfred. It's uh, February 5th. And uh, I hit 171 pounds. I am so excited. Um, I've been trying to break 174, I don't know, the past while. I've been, like, hovering around 168, 169, and then I'd lose back down to 167. And I finally I finally hit 170 pounds. In fact, I'm up to 171 pounds. So uh, I just got to keep this up. I've got a few, i got a, I think a little over a month before rehearsals start in full. And uh, that's when most of the promo photos are taken. So I've got to be ready for those. Okay. Breakfast is going to be probably steak and a tortilla. I used to love eating. I was famous uh, for the time that I ate an entire pizza by myself and for, you know, commonly eating two pints of Ben and Jerry's ice cream on my own every day. But um, eating now is like a chore. It's like I'm just eating putting the raw materials to build muscle into my body, and it tastes like bleh. It's February 6th, I think, uh, 7.05 a.m. I'm just getting back from training with Malfred today. It was a leg day, um, so I I hit a new peak weight on squats and did some other stuff, but I made a cytogaino shake before I went, and it was disgusting, like absolutely terrible. Uh, I didn't even get through half the shake before I threw it out and felt nauseous pretty much my whole workout. Still feel pretty nauseous. Oh, and I uh, had another weigh-in today, and I've lost a pound. I'm down to 170 from 171. It's kind of frustrating because I thought I was doing everything right with the meal plan, but apparently not. Okay. Bye. It's February 18th at 11.26 p.m., and uh, I haven't made an entry in a couple days because life goes crazy sometimes. But um, I went in for an official weigh-in today with Malfred, and I am up to 173 pounds. I'm about 20 pounds heavier than when I started, but I've still got about 10 pounds to go. Although, at this point, I should probably worry less about my butt and more about my lines.
Donovan Keith is an actor and high school teacher who lives and continues to eat a lot of protein in Oakland. This is uh, what I've had so far. So for breakfast, I had uh, six eggs with a little bit of onion in them, um, and four pieces of French toast, and a really tall glass of orange juice. And then for lunch, I had a, a foot-long cheesesteak sandwich. soup is bubbling on the stove and the recipe here says um, I need lemon zest. So I am zesting a lemon. I need a teaspoon of lemon zest. When I went to the store today I bought two lemons and they were 99 cents each which seems like a lot for um, what is a very small bitter fruit. The reason that lemons and oranges are so expensive right now is because this winter there was a huge freeze that devastated, virtually knocked out the citrus crop in the Central Valley. That's where Sasha Coca lives and where she met her boyfriend, who grew up in one of the small towns in the valley that relies on citrus for its livelihood. I met my boyfriend Carl soon after I moved from Oakland to Fresno in the heart of California's citrus belt. On our first date, he took me to a lake in the Sierra foothills for a hike, and we sat on this granite boulder above the shore. He laid out a napkin and then whipped out a pocket knife and sliced through a huge, juicy orange. I'd never seen anyone cut an orange like he did. First, he lopped off each end of the fruit, and he left a round disc of flesh in the middle. Then he cut through the skin and unfolded the orange so the sections broke apart naturally. That is a good orange. Carl grew up in Lindsay, which is this tiny town where oranges are basically the lifeblood. Even the local bars called the Orange and the old movie theaters called the Grove. The town has this annual spring festival with an orange blossom queen in her court. A few months after we started dating, Carl took me to the festival. The tiny white buds were just opening and they smelled wonderful. They looked kind of like constellations of stars that were spread across the acres of green groves, and it was all framed by the snow-covered peaks of the Sierra Nevada mountains in the distance. Then Carl's grandma cruised past the groves. She was waving from a convertible and wearing a big purple hat and a matching purple suit. She was honored at the festival that year, and she was dancing and throwing candy, just like the orange princesses. Carl's a high school teacher now, but he learned about oranges early. When he was a teenager, he drove a forklift in a packing house. And he would massage his mom's hands after she spent a long day sorting through oranges traveling along a conveyor belt. Carl's family and about half the people in Lindsay all work in oranges, picking, packing, or trucking them. And they all know the difference between a Valencia and a Naval and a Clementine. And on cold nights, they get an uneasy feeling when the town starts to sound like a helicopter landing pad. That's the sound you hear when farmers are firing up their giant wind machines. They're these propellers that push warm air among the groves, and they're trying to heat them up and protect them from frost. 
But this winter, the giant propellers were no match for the icy cold. Farmers lost a billion dollars in lemons and oranges. But folks in Lindsay have been through this before. There was another big freeze 16 years ago when Carl was in college, and it really destroyed Lindsay. The town's big olive plant had just closed, and then the orange workers, like Carl's mom, they lost their jobs. The community actually held a funeral for the town with a casket and everything. This time around, the town's mayor told me they aren't planning any funerals. They figured out a way to help Lindsay's economy. The mayor took me on a tour through his latest project, which is one of the largest lemon packing houses in town. It's a business that went under during the 1990 freeze, and now the city's bought the building and they're turning it into a fitness and rec center, complete with a huge maze of rooms painted black so people can play laser tag and Xbox. Carl says he never had anything like that when he was growing up in Lindsay. I just wonder what unemployed farm worker is really going to have money to spend on Xbox. It just seems like such a weird solution. Lindsay just seems so fragile to me, a place whose identity depends so much on fruit that can be wiped out by a few freezing nights. I just can't bite into an orange the way I used to. I can't think about the citrus freeze and people paying more at the supermarket without thinking about the people in Lindsay who pick and pack the fruit and then line the streets each spring to cheer on the orange blossom queen, and about how Carl cuts into an orange, making sure each juicy segment is intact. There's just something about the way someone from Lindsay understands the geometry of the fruit. And then you just cut it right down the middle, and it just opens up. And so you have eight beautiful wedges. Sasha Coca lives and reports in Fresno. This is B-Side. I'm Tamara Keith. And this edition of the show is all about food and our relationship with food. But sometimes it's not just about the relationship with the food, but the relationship with the people we eat the food with. Right now, I have a pot of lentil soup, vegetarian lentil soup on the stove. And I'm waiting for my husband to get home. Sometimes he likes it. Sometimes he doesn't like it. Um, He has this long list of food dislikes and... We've been married for a year. We've been dating for 10 years. And other than mushrooms and mustard, I can't tell you what's on the list. Besides Renee Gattel found out that she had a little bit to learn about her husband, too. She's a reporter in Phoenix, and she's also a newlywed. Her husband is John Tynan. We'll let them tell you the story. John and I had been married about four or five months when this happened. And we thought that we knew each other's food preferences um, pretty well. We had cooked together, we'd gone grocery shopping together, and most of the time we agreed on what we liked and what we didn't like. And so that's why what happened uh, really kind of caught me off guard. I just wanted to make breakfast for Renee. I wanted to surprise her. It was five in the morning, and it was cold out. We had no food in the house, and I just wanted to get pancake mix and maybe some bacon, so I thought, I'll just stop at the end of the block at the Friendly Mart. I was asleep the whole time. I, I just had no idea. I was in dreamland. I pull up to the side of the of the Friendly Mart. I just kind of ease right in, and I looked around the store, and I looked for bacon, and it was too expensive. It was like four ninety nine for a, a thing of bacon. I was like, well, I don't know. That seems a lot of money. What I do remember is the alarm going off, 
And he comes in and turns off the alarm clock and he says, uh, Hey, I, I've made breakfast for you. We got pancakes. And I said, Oh, great. And he said, uh, Yeah, and, and I went to the store and, and I got spam. <laughs> He goofs around a lot. He's a joker. So I just completely thought he was kidding. And she says, you're kidding, right? And it was some. It was right in there. I was just like, oh, no. <laughs> and she's like, oh, no, that's okay. Sure, I guess, uh fry it up. And then I realized, okay, you have to take this seriously, Renee. <laughs> there actually is spam in your house right now, and you're going to be called upon to eat it shortly. <laughs> what are you going to do? I go back into the kitchen, you know, and then I open up the can, and I'm not feeling that great about it. I'm like, oh, well, just open it up, and I'll make it anyway. I guess I have to make a mistake sometime, but I try real hard. I slice them thin, and I try and cook them to their crisp. He cooked it. He fried it right up, just like you would eat bacon. And I, I stumbled out and I had it for breakfast. And it wasn't that bad. It was kind of dense, but it was salty. I like salty things. I ate it um, a slice or two. You ever see that Charlie Chaplin silent movie where they eat a shoe? <laughs> it was kind of like that. You know, it was, but it was, it was a salted, it was a salted sole of shoe. <laughs> Any red flags go up in your head when you're looking at this spam thinking, I'm about to buy this? <laughs> well, yeah. I felt bad kind of quibbling in my mind over just a couple bucks. How much was the spam? I was about, uh, well, it was about 250 for the thing of spam, which was, you know, reasonable. That's what I wanted to pay for bacon. It did sort of shed light on a very subtle difference between between him and me because I I I just wouldn't buy spam and he would. Maybe every couple there's a spam dichotomy between the two of them that they don't even know about. So my penance was 15 hail spams. That was going to be my act of contrition. Whatever a hail spam is. <laughs> That was John Tynan with his wife, Renee Gattel. And it's time for dinner here at my house. Ira, what do you think? It's pretty good, I guess. Okay, cool. Can I have this help, please, dear? <laughs> Yeah, it needs a little salt.
That's all for this edition of B-Side. Our show was produced by Claudine Zaff with production assistance from Mia Lobel. I'm Tamara Keith, B-Side's senior producer. Please check us out online. We have photos of spam and oranges and much more, including information about how to subscribe to our podcast, bsideradio.org, that's our website, or cruise over to our MySpace page, myspace.com slash radio b-side. We would love to be your MySpace friend. Thanks for listening. Just eat it. Just eat it.